0: In the Republic of Plato called the parable of the cave and in this story there's a line of people a row of people chained in the cave and they are chained in such a way as they can only face the back wall the back wall of the cave they cannot turn around there's this row of people and they're chained in the cave And all they can see is the back wall of the cave. Behind this row of people is a fire creating light in the cave. And between the fire and the row of people is a whole procession of figures walking by, engaged in all (coughs) the activities of life. This procession of figures casts shadows on the back wall of the cave. And all the people who are chained, all that they can see are these shadows. They're unable to turn around to see the fire or that procession of figures. Their whole life is involved in the experience of the shadows, seeing the shadows on the wall. (laughs) And they take the shadows to be the ultimate reality. Because that's all that they can see, that's all they can perceive, the shadows on the wall. With very great effort, it might happen that one time or another, one or several of these chained people manages to free themselves a bit and turn (coughs) around and see the fire and the procession of figures and then begin to understand That the shadows are not the ultimate reality at all, but merely the effect of that fire and the the walking figures. And with even greater effort, it's possible he may be able to free himself from the chains entirely and walk outside of the cave, leave the cave completely into the sunlight. We are very much in the same predicament as those people who are chained in the cave, able to see only shadows. Mostly we live in a world of (laughs) shadow. That is to say, we live in a world of concept. And we take the concept to be the ultimate reality. Whereas, in fact, they are only shadows of reality. To give you some idea of the strength. of the conditioning which chains us to these concepts. We'll go through a few of the very strong ones which so very condition our lives. A very common concept, which most people share, is concept of place. Things like countries, states, cities, these are all concepts, mental constructs. There's no boundary on the earth. There's no, there's no sign on the earth which says, this is America and this is Canada, or that's Russia and that's China. Concepts of country, countries are purely the product of mind. They don't express any ultimate reality. But people very much take them to be real, very real and a lot of activity in the world, in politics, in economics, has to do, is based on this concept of country, this concept of place, as being a reality. Not seeing it to be simply the product of a thought process. An illustration of this was very clearly presented by a friend of mine who was (coughs) traveling overland from Greece to India. She went through Russia because Greeks are not allowed to travel through Turkey. Okay, so she went through Russia. She was crossing (coughs) the border between Russia and Iran. She said that it was just in a completely desolate area. some kind of desert, desert area. And there was this dry riverbed, a riverbed with no water in it. And over the riverbed was this huge iron bridge. Nothing around on either side, but just at this one place, in the middle of this desert-like country, is an iron bridge over over a dry riverbed. And there's a big iron gate in the middle, right in the middle of the bridge. And when she wanted to cross from Russia, into Iran. So the guards on one side had to call to the guards on the other side, and just at the same time, they come to the middle, and they put their keys into the gate at the same time, and they open it up at the same time. The gate opens, she crosses from Russia into Iran, right? They close the gates, they go back. It's like a Fellini movie. (laughs) (laughs) But those guards, and very many other people, Take that to be a very, a very real state, right, expressive of a very deep reality. The fact that on one side was one country and on the other side another country right, with all this apparatus. Concepts only. The product of a thought construct. <coughs> very many people are attached to concepts of place. A lot of the inequities in the world very much have to do with this kind of nationalism, right? Attachment to to a nation, which is only a concept in the first place. Okay, another kind of concept that is very deeply ingrained in our being is the concept of time, concepts of past and future. The past and future exist as certain kinds of thoughts in the present moment. We have certain thoughts or memories or reflections. We are having those mental ideas right now, but we take this whole class of thoughts, label it past, and sort of throw it out back there as as if it has a separate existence past is back there, future is out in front someplace, whereas in fact they are merely certain kinds of thoughts or or memories or imaginings or plannings, certain kinds of mental processes which are happening right now. The past is in the present. The future is in the present. The present is the only place that we can experience things. But because of a certain kind of conditioning, we separate certain aspects of the present experience and create this concept of past and future. And for very many people, it is a very great burden. always worrying about what one has done, or living in past, in past memories, or anticipating the future, being anxious about what is to happen. Not seeing those very states of mind as happening now, but projecting them onto some, to some concept which we have externalized, which we have thrown out of the present moment and take to be reality. It's a very great burden, and very, very freeing when we begin to experience all these different states (coughs) of mind, all these different thoughts, all the memories and imaginings and plannings and anxieties and hopes. It is very freeing when we can experience them as happening in the present moment. Concept of time. It's a very strongly ingrained concept with which we live. Another concept which very much affects many of our lives is the concept of ownership. There is a relationship between ourselves and various objects in the world. But in ultimate reality, the nature of that relationship does not at all involve ownership. Owning something is, a, is an agreed convention deriving from a certain concept about things. Whereas, the relationship is much more involved in proximity, right, to an object. The true relationship between myself and a chair cannot be one of ownership. It can be in the fact that I can sit on it. Ownership is completely extraneous. It's a completely extraneous concept which does not reflect any true state, right? does not reflect an experience, but only a thought about things. We are very much involved in this concept of ownership about many, many things, about external possessions, about people, parents with the idea of owning their children, all attached relationships, possessive-type relationships. And in fact, very much the concept of, ownership of ourselves, as if we own our mind and body. That concept does not reflect any actual experience at all. It is merely a thought construct which keeps us very bound to a certain way of behavior. It's a very great chain, right, which keeps us in the cave. Another concept which may be a bit surprising is that of man and woman. Man and woman are concepts. And as a very simple experiment to experience that for yourselves, just now sit and close your eyes for a moment and see if you can tell whether you're a man or a woman. Try it. (laughs) Sit with your eyes closed and see if you you can experience it. No way. All one can feel are sensations in the body or some, some feeling of, of position. Man or woman is a concept which derives from, from seeing color in a certain form, in a certain shape. It is not expressive of an ultimate reality. Very interesting to give up that concept. And that is, a, that is a pointer to the most fundamental concept of all, which is primarily responsible for our being bound to this wheel of samsara, of life and death. And that is the concept of self, of I, of me or mine. Self does not exist. There is no such entity which we can point to and say, this is the self. It is merely a concept, the product of a certain thought process, which does not reflect any real state at all. But all of our lives we go driven by this thought of I and self, which implies automatically another, I and other, duality, distinction, separation, division, all based on a concept rather than on a real state. The I, the self, is not something that has to be gotten rid of, or suppressed, or done away with, or beaten down, because it does not exist. All that we have to do is to stop creating that concept moment to moment. And it's in that sense that a lot of the Zen teachings that we are already enlightened, right? the level at which that should be understood is that in the first place there is no self. It is just Dharma's unfolding, the elements of mind and body unfolding. But that experience, that freedom from concept of self, has to be integrated over a, over a period of time, so that we can live our lives more and more free of that concept of self arising. All of these concepts of place, of time, of ownership, of being man or woman, of having a self, an I, an ego, and many, many other, other concepts, These are the shadows on the wall. These are the shadows on the cave, which we take to be reality. And our attachments to these concepts are the chains. They're the chains which keep us bound so that we can only see them, so that we can only perceive the shadows. Concepts are very interesting a very interesting phenomenon. Concepts are permanent in the sense that today I'm a man and yesterday I was a man and tomorrow I'll be a man. The concept of man remains. The reality behind it is an ever-changing flow, a flux, a very impermanent state. But because we are chained, because we are attached to the world of concept, we take things to be permanent. Whereas it is only the concept which is permanent, not the reality underneath. And because of the illusion of permanence, we fail to see the true nature of our mind and bodies attachment to the concept. As soon as we free ourselves from that attachment to concept and begin to experience the underlying realities, then the whole Dharma unfolds. It, it is revealed. We begin to experience everything as being in flow, in flux, which in turn loosens, breaks our attachment even more. So we free ourselves to a greater and greater extent from those chains which keep us bound in the cave, which keep us bound to the, to the back wall of shadow. Okay, Those are the kinds of examples of concepts which are very strongly ingrained in us. What are the ultimate realities which underlie these concepts, which are the cause of the concepts arising? There are four ultimate realities. The first are the elements of matter, the material elements. And traditionally, they are expressed as the earth, air, fire, water elements. The earth element meaning the element of extension, which manifests as hardness or softness when we touch the floor what's happening is an experience of hardness there is no such thing as flaw flaw is a concept the fact of the experience is hardness right when the hand comes into contact (coughs) hardness is a manifestation of the earth element hardness softness when we feel pain or aches or stiffness or tension in the body It's a predominance of this earth element. The fire element is the element of radiation, heat or cold. The air element is the element of vibration or movement. When there's movement in the body or externally, there is no arm which is moving. It's the air element which is moving. It's just a manifestation of the different elements working in process. Any kind of vibration or movement or, or jerkiness or swaying, all of that is the air element. The water element is the element of cohesion, that which keeps everything together. And that can be understood through a very simple example. If you're, if you're going to be making bread, and you take some flour, when you just have the flour, they're all fine little particles which don't hold together. They all fall apart. You add water to make it a dough, and they all cohere. <coughs> right? It becomes cohesive. It stays together. The function of the water element in the material universe is to bind the other elements together, so there is (coughs) cohesiveness. Okay, extension, radiation, vibration, cohesion. (coughs) These four elements are a unit, and when when they are together, there are four secondary qualities which manifest and that is color, and taste, and odor, and nutrition. These elements are the content of our experience in the material world. When you see something, you are not seeing man, or woman, or tree, or sky, or house. What is being seen is color. Everything else is a concept which results from a certain mental process, thought process. The fact of the experience is the seeing of color. The feeling of hardness or softness. The experience of heat or cold. This is the content of our experience with the the material world, as opposed to our thoughts about it. When we begin to train the mind to be on this experiential level rather than the thought conceptual level, we begin to experience all these material elements as a process, as arising and passing away. Everything is impermanent, is in flow. Nothing is substantial, nothing remains. the material elements are the first of the ultimate realities in the sense that they can be experienced rather than just thought about the second of the realities is consciousness and consciousness means the knowing faculty that which knows the object consciousness too is a process There is not one mind residing someplace within this this being which knows everything. Rather at every moment consciousness is arising and passing away, arising and passing away, being born and dying at every instant. Consciousness merely knows the object. There are six classes of consciousness corresponding to the six classes of objects in the universe, and that is seeing consciousness and hearing consciousness and tasting, smelling, touching consciousness and consciousness of, of mental, mental states, ideas, thoughts. That's all. That, that covers the entire universe. There is nothing apart from those things. Consciousness has the function to know the object. Consciousness by itself is pure. There's there's no defilement in the knowing faculty. It is in process. Consciousness is not self, it's not I, it's not mine. It's an impermanent, impersonal process going on. Okay, the elements of matter, consciousness, The third ultimate reality are a whole group of mental qualities which are called mental factors, and it's this group of mental factors which determine how the consciousness relates to the object. For example, such things as greed, hatred, delusion, love, devotion, confidence, energy, wisdom, mindfulness, concentration, and, and many more, 52 of them all together, are called mental factors. Some arising at every moment, some sometimes arising and sometimes not, in different combinations. Consciousness, the object, and mental factors arise together and pass away together. Nothing permanent in any one of these states. Nothing that can be taken as self, or I, or mine. Of these mental factors, there are three which are the roots of all unwholesome activity. So it is good to understand how it is that we are creating karma, both good and bad. The three unwholesome roots are greed, hatred and delusion. Greed is a mental factor which has the function to stick to the object, to cling. When greed arises in a moment, it causes the mind to stick to the object, to hold on, to grasp. Greed is not self, and it's not I. It is merely a mental factor which functions in a certain way, namely to, to cling. Hatred is a mental factor which has the nature to condemn, right, to push away, to want to get rid of the object. Hatred, aversion, anger, irritation, annoyance, impatience are all aspects of this mental factor of hatred, meaning condemning the object, striking against the object. There is no one who is angry, no one who is filled with hate. It is merely a mental factor, which may or may not arise, which functions in its own way. Greed, hatred, delusion. Delusion is a mental factor which functions as a great cloud in the mind. cannot see things clearly very forgetful of the object it's like darkness in a room when you come into a room that's, that's full of darkness you can't see anything you stumble over all the objects delusion is darkness in the mind delusion also is not I and not mine and not self It is an impersonal mental factor arising and passing away moment to moment. These are the three roots of all unwholesome action, which means that whenever we act motivated by either greed or hatred or delusion, the karmic result is pain and suffering. Those are the causes, those are the root causes of pain and suffering coming back to us, the law of karmic cause and effect. There is no one up in the sky meeting out judgment or justice. It's all the workings of the Dharma, of psychological law. When there's greed in the mind, it brings back a certain result. When there's hatred or delusion, it brings back a certain result. An impersonal law working. There's one other unwholesome factor of mind which is very interesting in that It is the it is the primary cause of the concept of self arising and that is the factor called wrong view wrong view view. and the function of wrong view is precisely to identify with various aspects of the process it identifies either with the mind or with the body or with external things taking them to be self That is the functioning of this factor. And because wrong view is present in the mind, the concept of self or of I arises. Wrong view is itself just an impermanent mental factor. Wrong view is not self, and it's not I, and it's not mine. But when it's present, it causes that concept to arise. And very much of the meditative practice is to train the mind to cultivate those, those mental factors which cannot coexist with wrong view. So that moment to moment we are free of that identifying process. And in that way, moment to moment, free of self, free of I, free of ego greed hatred delusion wrong view all of these are unwholesome factors there are wholesome ones namely non-greed non-hatred non-delusion non-greed means letting go generosity not holding on non-clinging non-hatred is not condemning loving friendliness not clinging, non condemning, non-delusion, which is the wisdom factor of mind, seeing things clearly. Wisdom is like a light in the mind, just as delusion is darkness. If you come into a dark room and you light a candle or a light, then everything is revealed. All the objects are clearly seen. How everything is working is understood wisdom factor of mind non-delusion serves that function of illumination when there is wisdom in the mind everything is revealed the nature of things can be penetrated non-greed non-hatred non-delusion are also mental factors they are not self and not mine and not me and not self ego there is no one who is wise there is no one who is loving there is no one who is generous it is merely these factors arising in the mind expressing their nature functioning in their own way there is one class of factors which are called common mental factors which means that they arise in every moment of consciousness every single moment these seven seven mental factors are always present and one of them is extremely important to understand in the development of our of our meditation practice and that is the factor of feeling feeling means the quality of pleasantness, or unpleasantness, or neutrality in every object. It's It's a mental factor. The quality of pleasantness, or unpleasantness, or neutrality. It is arising at every single moment. At every moment, there is one of these three kinds of feelings. Why is it so important? When we are not mindful, feeling, the mental factor of feeling very much conditions our reactions to things. When there is pleasant feeling, we are conditioned to cling. We want more. We enjoy it. We grasp at the pleasantness, at the pleasure. Pleasant feeling conditions grasping. Unpleasant feeling conditions condemning. When there's pain in the body or or unpleasant situations or unpleasant states, when we're not mindful, we condemn it, which is hatred or aversion in the mind. When there's neutral feeling, neither pleasant nor unpleasant, because it's a very subtle kind of feeling, it conditions delusion, being unaware of it, forgetting, forgetfulness. These feelings are always arising at every single moment. When we are not mindful, we get caught in this reactive wheel which keeps us bound, the reactions of of clinging, condemning, forgetting. But feeling also is impermanent and not self. And if we train our minds in mindfulness, in awareness, feeling arises. And we're simply aware, oh, pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. Staying mindful of that pleasant feeling of the impermanence of it. So we don't get involved in clinging. When unpleasant feeling arises and we're mindful, (laughs) we simply observe the flow of unpleasantness. Oh, paining, paining, paining. Not condemning it, not having aversion towards it, Merely observing that impermanent flow. Mindfulness breaks the chain of reaction to these feelings. And so it becomes very important to cultivate mindfulness with these feelings as the object, this quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness, so we no longer are involved in this incessant clinging and condemning, that imbalance of mind. two mental factors which are at the heart of the whole meditation development are concentration and mindfulness. Concentration means one-pointedness of mind, the ability of the mind to stay on an object without wavering. Very much as the flame of a candle in a windless place. The, the flame does not waver, it does not flicker because there's no wind. The concentrated mind has that same nature of steadfastness, steady on the object, one-pointed. Without some degree of concentration, it is impossible to develop penetrating insight. The mind will not have any strength at all to penetrate into deeper and deeper levels of our mind-body flow. A certain amount of concentration is indispensable. A scattered mind has no power. Concentration or samadhi is a mental factor. It's not I and it's not self and it's not mine and it's nothing to get attached to. It is merely a quality of mind which has to be cultivated so that it can function in its own way. Mindfulness is the other mental factor. And the function of mindfulness is to notice the object, not to forget what the present object is, to stay aware, to stay awake. When there is mindfulness present, there is no clinging, there is no condemning, there is no identifying with the object. So that at that moment there is no wrong view. Mindfulness as a mental factor has some very interesting properties. First of all, it can only exist with other wholesome factors. It cannot coexist with unwholesome factors. So that at every moment of mindfulness, the mind with all its factors are wholesome, are pure. Mindfulness also has the power to bring or attract all the other factors of enlightenment. It's like a magnet. If you're mindful, there are seven factors of enlightenment which have to be cultivated. Mindfulness brings them all. If we're mindful, all those other factors will be, will be drawn in and developed. A third power of mindfulness is that it creates a balance in the mind. It is the great balancing factor. Without mindfulness, it is very easy to become extreme in the development of one or other of the wholesome factors, can develop too much devotion, or too much wisdom, or too much energy, or too much samadhi, out of balance with the others. And then it becomes a hindrance. Enlightenment happens out of a balanced mind. The purpose of meditation is to achieve that perfect equilibrium of mind, perfect poise, perfect undisturbed balance. And it's precisely the factor of mindfulness which brings this balance, which brings this poise of mind. Mindfulness also is not I, and it's not self, and it's not mind. It is a mental factor which functions in a certain way. Our task is to develop these wholesome factors, not to, not to cling to them, not to identify with them, not to become attached to them, merely to cultivate them so that they can work in their own way, following their own laws. Okay, there's the elements of matter, there's consciousness, there's mental factors. These are three of the four ultimate realities. The fourth ultimate reality is nirvana that state beyond the mind-body process and it can be compared to somebody who's sitting in that cave and who manages to free himself in such a way so that not only can he see the fire behind him and the procession of figures which correspond to the material elements to consciousness and to mental factors those elements which are causing the shadows, but to free himself to such a degree that he is able to walk out of the cave completely. Nirvana is outside of the cave of mind and body. It's peace, illumination, enlightenment, freedom, the end of the burden, the putting down of this burden, of the ultimate realities is that they can be experienced. And the whole course of the meditation is precisely to experience these realities, to see how they are working, and to free ourselves from any attachment whatsoever. Attachment is the chain which keeps us in the cave as our mind becomes silent as we begin to be on the experiential level rather than on the thought conceptual one we see that all of these all of these realities the first three are all impermanent all in flux all not self all unsatisfactory because of their impermanence We experience that, we integrate that into our lives. And so we begin to let go. Not to be attached, not to be holding on, not to be chained into that cave. And as the chains become weaker and weaker and weaker, we get to a point where we are able to emerge from the cave entirely. The
1: direction
0: the direction that we're facing as we cultivate awareness of mindfulness is precisely towards the light outside of the cave, towards enlightenment, towards freedom. Any questions?
1: You said that when
0: Achaas was to develop develop wholesome qualities, wholesome and unwholesome seem to be just concepts, too. Okay. They're unwholesome or wholesome only in the sense of understanding (coughs) their place in this law of cause and effect. Unwholesome in the sense that if there's an act motivated by greed, it's going to cause pain. Another word that you can use for that is unskillful, instead of unwholesome.
1: Okay, but, but then, you say
0: that in a way that pain is something to be hated and to be pushed away. No, it's something
1: to be free of. Right. Unless but one... Right, exactly. Well, then it wouldn't seem
0: like it would matter if
1: it um oh.
0: No, because skillful states of mind the result of wholesome states bring happiness, but there are happiness of different kinds. And we're going to get into, in another talk, different kinds of happiness. The highest happiness being enlightenment, which is free of all states, wholesome and unwholesome. For example, the parable was given by the Buddha of if you're, if you're crossing a stream, right? You come to a river and you want to cross it. You don't have any way to get across. So you build yourself a raft, right? and on the raft you go across. This raft are the skillful states of mind, in the sense that they lead to freedom, they lead to enlightenment. When you cross the river, you do not carry this raft on your head with you. The raft has served its purpose, and you let it go. In the same way, all the wholesome mental factors as well are something to be given up. You don't want to give up the raft in the middle of the river. You want to get to the other side first. All the wholesome states of mind lead to freedom. They're to be used. They are not to be clung to. They are to be gotten beyond also.
1: Is the river life then? Because, I mean, these, these, um, you use the, the concepts to get through life, and then you, or is it just a stage of life? I mean, in that
0: in that metaphor? In that, in that <coughs> the river is this flow of process.
1: Which is life. I mean, life?
0: With lo- Right. So what's
1: the other side?
0: The other side is a state of cessation of suffering. Right? We do not see this process very clearly in the beginning as being unsatisfactory. We are very attached because we are not experiencing very deeply this flow of impermanence. Moment to moment to moment. There is nothing to hold on to. There is no possibility of any aspect of the process whatsoever giving lasting satisfaction. It is impossible because everything is momentarily vanishing. So if we are attached to any part of the process as being the cause of our, of our lasting happiness, it's going to result in great pain because it's vanishing. This flow, this incessant mind-body flow, is a very great burden compared to the experience of the peace beyond this flow. People sometimes get involved in the misconception that enlightenment is annihilation, right? Enlightenment is the end. I no longer exist. There is nothing in the first place to be annihilated. There is no self which is going to be destroyed. That is the big illusion. And the whole process of meditation is to see that there is no one here. It's just empty phenomena rolling on. And the very rolling on of of this endless, endless, endless flow of phenomena is very, very burdensome. Enlightenment is freedom from that from that state of continual flux. It's a state of peace. There is no one here now and no one who gets enlightened. There is suffering and the end of suffering. As long as the
1: goes on, there is suffering. What you're saying. Th- so, but if there's no process, there's no life. <clears throat> <clears throat> so what? <laughs> life...
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. Life is a very um, tricky concept. <laughs> You know that's one of that's one of the shadows on the wall right and there's a whole connotative aspect to life and to living to which we are very attached all that there is is this process of mind and body arising and passing away moment to moment living and dying in the moment there is no continuity to life no nothing which goes on living throughout it's this momentary arising and vanishing we are being born and dying at every moment when it is seen clearly it is seen as a very unsatisfactory state because it it's so empty there is nothing there it's insubstantial it's like foam or bubbles on water as soon as you try to grasp it it vanishes There is no one behind the flow. There is no one who's experiencing it. All that there is is this flow.
1: But
0: it's only unsatisfactory if you're asking for you're asking for duration. It can be the unsatisfactory nature of it. Part of the meditation experience is to experience fully how this flow is happening, right? How the arising and passing away of consciousness and object, moment to moment, coming into being and vanishing. And you go through different stages with different perspectives on this flow, right? And sometimes you get great clarity and, and tremendous um, mindfulness and samadhi, and it's a tremendous happiness a very great happiness as you proceed with your mindfulness just with noticing it keeping on noticing the flow you go through you go through that stage where the perspective on this flow you see the inherent fearfulness and misery and suffering inherent in the fact of impermanence that's another perspective right? This is, the, this is what's experienced. It's not, it's not thought about. Right? It's not, oh, I'm going to experience it as painful now. It's not that at all. This is what happens. Out of that, you go through that period of experiencing things as very fearful, very very full of suffering. You get to a place of equanimity. Right? You have integrated both that clarity and the, and the fearfulness. And so the mind is just balanced, just watching it not clinging, not condemning, out of that place of balance comes enlightenment, comes freedom. And when you have the perspective of that moment of nirvana, of cessation, you then have the, the perspective with which to properly see what this flow is about. Right? Because you've, you've experienced something beyond it. And the example is given of people living in a very poor country, very little water, very little vegetation, a lot of hardship, a lot of struggling. It's the only place they know. So they take it to be beautiful and wonderful. And It happens that perhaps one or several of them go to another land which is very lush, you know, very abundant. And then when they look back upon where they came from, they see it as it was. Right? In the same way, when someone has experienced this state of peace, right, they then have the perspective to see what's involved in this state of, of flux and impermanence. In comparison to the peace, in comparison to the freedom, this is a very unsatisfactory state. But all of this is not, you don't have to believe it, you don't even have to think about it, right? It's just to experience in oneself what is happening already and let the Dharma unfold by itself. Right? Don't lay any concepts or, or projections about how we would like to see things. Right? Just to observe things as they are and then the whole Dharma will be revealed. A teacher is helpful. right? Merely to point out the way. Everybody has to walk for themselves. No one can enlighten another being. Enlightenment comes when the when all the factors of mind are matured. And that comes through our own efforts. All the teacher does is to to point out the path.
1: What is the thing that makes the transposition between the state of peace and, and mindfulness and the state where you're insisting on in a daily life full of mental factors,
0: and these mental right, factors... Right, I didn't understand that. You were describing a state of peace,
1: where you're not attached. Oh, well, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is, but I don't have ever experienced it. But, um, um, you're kind of free of all these mental factors, and, um, you're in a position to be able to, uh, experience, like, neutrally, or...
0: Okay, there, there are two... You're confusing two different things. One is the state of nirvana, which is the cessation of this mind-body process, that state that exists when this, when this process ceases. Okay. Nirvana is permanent in the sense that it's uncreated. It, it's right here now. Okay. People have differing abilities to experience it. In the state of nirvana, You're not walking around doing things, right? In whatever position you happen to be, when going into that state, that's where you remain as long as you're in it. There's no movement, there's no knowing. It is beyond the knowing. Knowing is part of the process. Knowing is unsatisfactory too. We are prisoners of knowing, right? There's no way to escape that, except in this state beyond the mind-body process. So in that state of Nirvana, there's no, there's no uh, walking, talking, eating, that's not what's happening. The result of that experience, and even the result of the meditation before the experience, as one develops a balanced mind, is that we can get into a place of very great equanimity, right? This is not Nirvana, but it's a very balanced mind which leads to that experience of Nirvana. And so we can deal very beautifully, very harmoniously in the world with a very balanced mind, not clinging, not condemning, not identifying with things, but just flowing very smoothly. That's, that's when the skillful mental factors are present.
1: submental factors factors.
0: No, consciousness is only the knowing faculty. Mental factors, consciousness, and object are arising simultaneously. Right? We can be mindful, mindfulness being a mental factor. In other words, mindfulness is like a, a uh, spotlight in the middle. Right? It can be directed either towards the object, towards the knowing, towards consciousness itself, or towards other predominant mental factors. In other words, when there's anger in the mind, anger is a, is a, factor, of, it's a factor of mind. We can be mindful of anger. Yeah? And we're going to be getting into making all those three ultimate realities, the material elements, mental factors, and consciousness itself, as objects of meditation, so that we experience the totality of who we are. Okay. no death is to be understood in two ways first death is happening at every moment because consciousness and object are arising and vanishing that moment has been born and died completely right? the moment of, the moment that we call conventional death right where the where the body becomes a corpse Just as in life there is a continuity to this process, Right, dependent upon this moment arises the next moment. Conditioned by what is happening now will result in what is going to happen, what is going to arise. Nothing carried over, but a process of conditioned cause and effect. The moment of death, conventional death, conditions a whole mm-hmm. new rebirth consciousness. There is no end with death. with the body. But actually, the wheel of life goes on and on and on, which is why death is not the end of the process at all. It's It's very much part of the process. Except that this whole cosmic view can be experienced in the moment. When the mindfulness is very sharp, you see that the very same process that happens at the time of conventional death is happening moment to moment. That can be experienced. Mm-hmm. No, when when the, the frequency of noticing becomes so sharp that you're picking up moment to moment the arising and passing away. The total arising and total passing away, nothing carried over whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Right? That's when we begin to give up our attachment. You know?
1: Does nirvana have to do with um, realizing um, the circle and breaking away from the circle, or getting
0: out of the circle? Nirvana is itself the breaking out of the circle, but it does not come usually from thinking about it. Right? It comes from achieving that balance of mind where the experience can happen, and the process of meditation. Of mindfulness, of developing insight, is precisely to develop that balance of mind which is not clinging and not condemning and not identifying with what's happening. So it's perfectly equanimous. And then out of that balance the experience of nirvana can happen. No, that nirvana is very much out of this out of this circle of birth and death because it's not it's not conditioned. It's not a it's not a state which, which arises from certain causes. And the whole traditional list of adjectives is uncreated, unborn, uncaused, un this, un that. Right? It's unborn, so it's undying.
1: Once one enters nirvana, how does
0: one uh, re-enter the regular world? Okay. We're really getting into uh, the stratosphere here. (laughs) (laughs) At first, the experience of nirvana is just momentary. In other words, you're, you're just with this flow of arising and passing away, right, moment to moment. And in an instant, there's a moment of cessation an instant. The experience of that instant of cessation has a very uh, powerful permanent effect on the subsequent flow, right? Because you've experienced what Trungpa was talking about last night as zero. Zero not being nothing, right? Zero is... In the Tibetan Book of the Great Liberation, there's a very powerful line. They call it the one mind talking about the zero state. It is, but it doesn't exist. Kay? The experience of that, of that zero, which is, although it does not exist, completely eradicates from the subsequent flow the concept of self, or of I, because there has been the, there has been the experience of zero, right? You've gone beyond. Because of that elimination of wrong view from the mind, from that point on, all the mental factors, all the processes of mind are directed towards a more and more complete enlightenment. From that point on, you're destined towards full enlightenment. Just from that one instant, there are still other other hindrances, other defilements of mind to be worked through. There's still greed and there's still sense desire and ill will and desire to go to heaven and restlessness. All those factors are still present. But they are no longer taken to be self, which is the great, it's the root of our attachment to samsara. People with very good samadhi who have had that experience of zero, of nirvana, can develop the ability to to enter that state at will. Right? The, the re-entering of nirvana does not further remove defilement but it's just the ability which comes from samadhi from concentration you have that experience and the removal of that, that defilement of wrong view and again you walk the same path you go through this whole process of mindful meditation mindfulness and you experience the second stage you experience nirvana again right? removing other defilements In this way, there are four paths. The completion of the fourth path, meaning the total eradication of all unwholesome states of mind, when it that's that's a fully enlightened being. When that person dies, right? It's called parinibbana. It means the fire has gone out and there's no feeding of it. There's no more putting new fuel on it. So that's that's nirvana. Whatever. you have
1: cognizance, a memory of the uh, nirvana state once you're out of nirvana doesn't that preclude anything, that there's some sort of consciousness going into nirvana in order to have memory of it
0: for example if you wake up from a very deep sleep a, a dreamless sleep at the time of sleeping, you're not aware that you're sleeping, right? When you wake up, you are aware that you have slept deeply, right? And it's very much in the same way. In the experience of nirvana, it, there is no knowing. It's beyond the knowing process. And emerging from that, you know that something happens. You know. But everybody is capable of experiencing it. And now what? then all questions will be answered for oneself. It's just walking on the path. There's a very clear path which leads to that experience. All we have to do is walk on it. Kay. There's a semantic difficulty in English because we use desire, we use the English word desire to represent two different mental factors. Okay? One of them has to do with desire for an object, clinging to an object, right? That's one kind of desire. The other mental factor, which in English is called desire, but does not involve that clinging, has been better translated as the urge to do something or the motivation to do, right? That does not necessarily involve grasping at the object. And in fact, what we call desire for enlightenment is not at all the craving factor but this motivation factor you cannot possibly experience enlightenment by clinging to anything the whole process involves letting go so that that craving kind of desire cannot be present in the mind there can be in the beginning this identification with the effort factor Right? Effort, is effort is another mental factor. It's not I and it's not self. It's merely a factor of mind working in its own way. As the meditation develops, you will be able to observe the factor of effort as being not self. Right? So the effort can be there without attachment. Just Effort is there, all the wholesome factors are there, without any attachment to them whatsoever. Just letting them unfold.
1: Effort becomes
0: effortless. That's exactly what happens.
1: I have a question about samadhi. Is it possible to have more than one object at a time? No. So then, is concentration keeping one object for a longer time?
0: Okay. There are two kinds of samadhi. One is when you give the mind a single object, right? Keeping the mind, for example, on a light or a mantra or a sound or any, any single object, right? Developing one-pointedness on that one object. That leads to very high levels of samadhi, of trance states, right, very great power of mind. The kind of samadhi that we are developing is called momentary samadhi. And that is a very highly concentrated mind on the flow of objects. Each moment is a different object, right? but at each moment, highly concentrated. That's called momentary samadhi, or momentary concentration. And that's the kind of samadhi which leads us to enlightenment. Right? There's moment-to-moment concentration. So just awareness. Aware- there are two different factors. Concentration keeps the mind one-pointed, Mindfulness keeps the mind remembering of what the object is, not allowing the mind to forget. So they have two different functions, but they're, they're happening simultaneously. The other factors which are permanent in our
1: consciousness, and in this same Patriarch booklet, is a line which says, there is no self and no other than self. We on the last table.
0: The last three words come directly from the first. If there is no self, there is no other than self. But
1: right? do you still
0: a of it the, when you experience, it is interesting. Uh, Rinpoche's lecture last night very much revolved about this this whole question of what unity means, right? <coughs> There is a unity which comes from the experience of zero, which is just that experience of not-self, right? When there is no self, then everything is equally part of the process. This is no more self than this, right? Or this or that. Or it's all processes arising and passing away. So there's no self and no other than self, no distinction, no discrimination. It's all, it's all a process happening.
1: It <coughs> still implies no other point of reference. Which is maybe constantly changing.
0: Well, if you can find that point of reference, I would be interested.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know all the words will become clear from the experience of the meditation. which we must do. If there are questions afterwards, we can discuss for some time. We'll do about twenty minutes of We talked about the importance of feeling, that is the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness, and the necessity to be mindful of those feelings. The class of objects in which feeling is very predominant are bodily sensations. Feelings of pleasure or pain in the body are very noticeable and it's, it's very important to train the mind to be mindful of them so that we don't react so that we don't cling to the pleasant sensations or condemn the unpleasant sensations. So we'll add to the field of mindfulness all the sensations which may arise in the body that is we start with the breathing either the in-out or the rising-falling and in the gap between the falling and the next rising or the out and the next in the awareness of the body posture and then whenever a feeling in the body a sensation in the body becomes predominant then that should become the object of meditation for example we're doing rising falling and then there's a pain in the knee When the mind is drawn to the pain, we give up the breathing as the object and focus our mindfulness, our attention, only on that flow of painful sensation, not condemning it, not expecting it to go away, not reacting, a very relaxed, easy, attentive mind, (coughs) experiencing the flow, the impermanence of those feelings, of those sensations in the body then when it, when it is no longer predominant, again back to the breathing, the rising, falling, or in out. If there's <coughs> itching or heat or cold or tingling or vibration or tension or aching or blissful sensation, whatever they may be, as they arise without looking for them, as they arise and become predominant, they should be made the objects of mindfulness, making a mental note of them and then going back to the breathing again. Very easy, very rhythmic, very attentive. Okay, we'll sit for about a half an hour.